Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, April 15th. In today's news, President Trump's insistence that his signature appear on stimulus checks may slow down their delivery. Coronavirus checkpoints targeting out-of-state residents draw growing legal scrutiny. And more than 9,000 U.S. healthcare workers have now been infected with the contagion. But first, the big idea. A team of government officials led by FEMA and the CDC has created a public health strategy to combat the coronavirus and reopen parts of our country. The strategy, which someone leaked to my colleagues last night, is part of a larger White House effort to draft a national plan to get Americans out of their homes and back to work. It gives guidance to state and local governments on how they can ease mitigation efforts, moving from drastic reductions like stay-at-home orders to a safe reopening. President Trump wants a final plan on reopening the country ready within days so he can issue suggestions for some states to start reopening on May 1st. At his briefing last night, Trump said roughly 20 states have avoided the crippling outbreaks that have affected others, and he hinted that some of them can begin restarting their economies before May 1st. The 36-page document we obtained contains granular instructions for a phased reopening of institutions such as schools, childcare facilities, summer camps, parks, faith-based organizations, and restaurants. The plan lays out three phases— preparing the nation to reopen with a national communication campaign and community readiness assessment through May 1st. Then, through May 15th, the effort would involve ramping up manufacturing of testing kits and personal protective equipment and increasing emergency funding. Then, staged reopenings would begin depending on local conditions. The plan does not give dates for those reopenings, but specifies that they definitely should not be until after May 1st. This secret document says the first priority should be to reopen community settings where children are cared for, including K-12 schools, daycares, and locally attended summer camps, in order to allow the workforce to get back to the office. The document also says that during these phased reopenings, it's critical to strictly follow recommendations on hand washing and wearing face coverings in group settings. The document warns ominously that reopening communities, even with a phased approach, will quote, entail a significant risk of a resurgence of the virus. The executive summary says any reopening must meet four conditions. First, incidence of infection is genuinely low. Second, a well-functioning monitoring system capable of promptly detecting any increase in incidence of infection. Third, a public health system that's reacting robustly to all new cases of COVID-19 and has surge capacity to react to an increase in cases. And fourth, a health system that has enough inpatient beds and staffing to rapidly scale up and deal with a surge. Communities where it's necessary to maintain only low mitigation or places where the virus has never spread significantly, those are the places that could open sooner than later. Moderate mitigation is called for in former hotspots that are entering what the government calls controlled recovery. Significant mitigation is recommended in current or emerging hotspots or moderate mitigation communities showing signs of strained healthcare system capacity. In a community following the track for moderate mitigation, the report says that schools could 
reopen as long as there are enhanced distancing measures such as no assemblies, no school sporting events, and staggered scheduling for when students are entering the building. This document that we got calls for the CDC to establish a 670-member response corps to help state and local health departments surge contact tracing, which involves locating people who may have had contact with someone infected with the virus. Another idea getting discussed at the highest levels of government is that some people could be granted a so-called certificate of immunity, which could be some kind of special clearance document that says a person is no longer infectious or vulnerable to the disease, which will give them special access to places where people who don't have the certificate couldn't go. But that proposal is mired in the slippery science of this new virus. No one knows whether a recovered COVID-19 patient is actually immune to new infection or if they are immune, how complete or long-lasting that may be. Some kind of immunity post-infection is the most plausible scenario. That's the pattern with most infectious diseases. The body's remarkable adaptive immune system typically clears out a virus and then maintains sentinel disease-fighting antibodies that are ready to repel subsequent attacks. But there are preliminary reports out of South Korea and China, not yet peer-reviewed, but getting a lot of attention, that have surprised and baffled scientists. Some survivors test positive after they've been officially cured. They also have widely varying amounts of antibodies in their system. Some survivors have abundant antibodies. Other survivors have undetectable antibodies. So this might be different than other infections we've seen in the past. Serology testing, which is being rolled out across the United States, looks at blood serum for signs of antibodies to the virus. And authorities have been hailing the arrival of these tests as crucial to the goal of restarting the crippled economy. They could also help answer key questions about the virus, such as how many people become infected without symptoms and how widespread it really is in our community. European countries are starting to walk the tightrope out of lockdowns. They're a little bit ahead of the curve. They also were ahead of the infection curve. The first easing of restrictions began earlier this week with Austria reopening some non-essential businesses. Denmark is expected to allow children to return to school this week. Spain has allowed construction and factory workers to go back, though a national lockdown otherwise remains in effect. In an attempt to avoid any repeat of the haphazard, panicked policy decisions that accompanied the initial spread of the virus in Europe, European Union leaders in Brussels plan to unveil formal suggestions later today on how to reopen the 27-nation bloc gradually over the coming months. They will also, like the CDC and FEMA are considering, advise countries to reopen their economies in phases with schools and shops given first priorities and then restaurants and other social venues coming later. Policymakers over there caution that leaders need to move slowly, potentially waiting a month between each new step, and then be prepared to reverse themselves rapidly if infections start to spread again. But each national government will have the final say on lifting restrictions within its borders, and when to resume free movement between countries in Europe will be another discussion entirely. And there's a great sense of urgency for places to reopen. With no income coming in, for example, the Neumünster Zoo in Germany is preparing to take extraordinary measures if the country's lockdown continues much longer. The zoo plans to start feeding some of their animals to other animals because they can no longer afford food. Animals that are not in danger of going extinct and those that have meat which can be eaten by humans will be the first to go. And that's the big idea. 
Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one, the Treasury Department has ordered President Trump's name be printed on stimulus checks that the Internal Revenue Service is rushing to send to tens of millions of Americans, a process senior IRS officials say could slow their delivery by a few days. The unprecedented decision, which was finalized late Monday, means that when recipients open the $1,200 paper checks the IRS is scheduled to begin sending to 70 million Americans, President Donald J. Trump will appear on the left side of the payment. It will be the first time ever that a president's name has appeared on an IRS disbursement, whether a routine refund or one of the handful of checks the government has issued to taxpayers over the past few decades, either to stimulate a down economy or share the dividends of a strong one. This decision is another sign of Trump's efforts to cast his response to the pandemic in political terms. Trump privately urged Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, who oversees the IRS, to do it this way, according to three administration officials. But under U.S. law, the president is actually not an authorized signer for legal disbursements by the Treasury. That's why they're just putting his name on the check. It's actually going to be signed by someone else. It's standard practice in this country for a civil servant to sign checks issued by Treasury to ensure that government payments are nonpartisan. So computer codes must be changed to add the president's name, and then the system must be tested. About 80 million people who filed their tax returns last year with direct deposit and are eligible for the money will see it appear in their bank accounts later today. Although the government sent out the money on Friday, most banks need three business days to process the checks. Meanwhile, more than 80% of the benefits of changes to the tax code that were tucked into that $2 trillion stimulus package are going to go to those who earn more than a million dollars a year, according to a new nonpartisan report by the Joint Committee on Taxation. The provision inserted by Senate Republicans at the last minute suspends a limitation on how much owners of businesses formed as pass-through entities can deduct against their non-business income, such as capital gains, in order to reduce their tax liability. And last night, the U.S. government reached a deal with 10 airlines to give them $25 billion in bailouts. Under the terms of the government's deal, 70% of the money will be given to the airlines outright, and 30% will need to be paid back later to the government as loans. And the Federal Aviation Administration has issued a directive overnight barring any active pilots from taking chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine. Those are the two drugs that Trump continues to tout as a treatment against the virus. It's unproven. The CIA also telling their staff not to use it because it could cause sudden death. The FAA says anyone who takes either medication is disqualified from operating any aircraft for at least 48 hours after their last dose. Number two, in Florida and Texas, state troopers are requiring motorists from out of state and their passengers to sign forms promising to self-quarantine for 14 days. Florida, Rhode Island, and Texas also require travelers to provide an address where they plan to shelter and advise them to be prepared for follow-up calls and unannounced visits from sheriffs and public health officials. While the efforts initially targeted residents of New York, which of course has the most coronavirus cases, they've now quickly expanded. At local checkpoints for people entering the Florida Keys and North Carolina's Outer Banks, police ask motorists for ID and in some cases utility bills. Only those with local addresses and proof of residency are allowed to proceed. Most experts agree that singling out motorists with out-of-state license plates as a public health measure is 
irrational. Doing so assumes that those drivers and passengers are at higher risk of carrying the virus than residents, even if they're coming from the same hotspot. Serious lawyers who went to the best schools also say it's unconstitutional to impede citizens' travel based on their license plate, even if they're eventually allowed to cross the border. Delaware State Police recently set up checkpoints on roads leading to Rehoboth and Bethany Beaches. An emergency order by that governor authorizes all police in the state to stop any vehicle, quote, this is what the order says, simply because it is displaying an out-of-state tag. The state police have also been pulling over with people with Pennsylvania plates because Pennsylvania has closed its liquor stores, so people are crossing into Delaware to try to buy booze, but police are pulling them over and telling them to turn around and go home. In Florida, up to 16 state troopers are now guarding the border along Interstate 95 and Interstate 10. Checkpoints have turned the Florida Keys into a gated community. More than 4,000 cars have been turned around since March 27th when local authorities set up barricades to block non-residents from getting onto the Keys. The county that includes those islands reports that local sheriffs have even caught motorists using counterfeit reentry stickers and they've arrested a Wisconsin woman who tried to drive straight through a checkpoint. In the Outer Banks, deputies have ticketed four people who tried to sneak around the checkpoints and turned around three dozen people who tried to cross the sound to get to the Outer Banks by boat. Officers also found a non-resident trying to sneak in on a tow truck and another who was hiding in the trunk of a car. Number three, a patient with respiratory issues arrived on February 15th at a hospital in Solano County, California. February 15th was a different time before social distancing, masks, and lockdowns. But during a four-day hospital stay, doctors, nurses, and other workers interacted with this person and performed multiple aerosol-generating procedures without wearing special protective gear. 11 days later, they discovered that that person had COVID-19 and 121 staffers at the hospital had been exposed to the coronavirus as a result. This is according to a brand new CDC case study that makes for sobering reading. 43 staffers at that single hospital subsequently experienced flu-like symptoms. The number of American healthcare workers with COVID-19 has spiraled upward ever since. At least 9,000 have now tested positive for the coronavirus, according to a separate CDC analysis released last night. The CDC says that the majority of the 9,000 who have gotten infections are white women and in their 40s. White women in their 40s. At least 27 of our frontline healthcare workers have died in this country. And the infection numbers are believed to be a gross undercount due to the continuing lack of available tests in many areas. Some regions and institutions are no longer testing healthcare workers, reserving the kits for their sickest patients. But in the spirit of trying to wrap up with a silver lining, some days it's harder than others, not all the news is bad. Angela Primachenko, a respiratory therapist who works in a Washington state hospital, was 27 years old and 34 weeks pregnant and days into a fight against the coronavirus when she decided, on the advice of her doctors, to go into a medically induced coma to try to save the life of her baby. When they put her under, no one was sure whether she'd come out alive. She said goodbye to her 11-month-old daughter, Emily, unsure whether she'd see her or her husband, David, again. As Angela lay comatose, 
the doctors induced the baby to give Angela's lungs more space and her body more nutrients. Five days later, Angela finally opened her eyes. And when she opened her eyes, she saw her healthy baby girl. Doctors say they're both going to make it. Angela and her husband have decided to name the baby girl Ava. Ava means breath of life. And that's the Daily 202 for Wednesday, April 15th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.